Good morning to you. How many of you have a catch-all kitchen junk drawer? Uh, there are vital items in that drawer. You probably have a letter opener, a, a permanent marker, uh, a series of hopefully not yet expired coupons. Uh, you have a couple of takeout menus for places you always order the same three things from anyway. Uh, and you perhaps have some paper clips and maybe a few rubber bands. But the thing is, in the kitchen sink or the kitchen junk drawer, uh, those valuable items are all sort of just jumbled together. They're thrown in the drawer. They don't ex exhibit the exquisite order and tidy structure that we see over in the silverware drawer. The silverware drawer enjoys uh, order and structure. Uh, there's a plastic mold, so the forks nestle appropriately one on top of the other, separate from the spoons who spoon each other inside of the plastic mold. Uh, our text today is unlike the uh, utensil drawer and more like the kitchen junk drawer. Uh, today we arrive at the final sermon taken from the final verses of the final chapter of 1 Corinthians. It is our 50th and final sermon in the book of 1 Corinthians. And sadly, tragically, uh, the final verses in epistles are often neglected by the modern church. And I think it's because the, the final verses in an epistle contain a, a litany of what at first glance appears to be disparate and disjointed directives and a gaggle of greetings to people we don't really know all that well. But God says that all Scripture, which would include this section, is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and, and training in righteousness so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, so these seemingly extraneous verses uh, are, are something God thinks are absolutely vital for us to get a handle on, to, to understand and apply. And 1 Corinthians 16, I think, finds the coherence of these disparate statements around three basic subjects, plans, clans, and commands. Plans, clans, and commands. And we have already invested two Sundays examining the plans portion of this passage and the clans portion of this passage. And so today we conclude looking at the commands portion of this passage. And so I invite you, as we turn in the word of the Lord to 1 Corinthians 16, one final time, that we would first turn to the Lord of that word and ask him to bless our time in his text. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you today asking and inviting you to speak to us through your holy word. These are not suggestions. These are commands. These are things that you want us to not just comprehend and understand, but you want us to live and apply. I pray that as we go through them, there may be some necessary repetition as we look at the same scripture from three angles on three Sundays, there will be a sort of overlap. And yet I pray that you would uh, refresh us, 
that you would embed in us. That which is repetitious, may we be mindful that you gave us four gospels to tell us one story four different ways so that we might live it. You gave us Deuteronomy, a second giving of the law you had already given in the previous books of the Pentateuch so that we would remember and obey it. And so we pray, Lord, today, Lord, where there is overlap, it might reinforce. And where there is new, that it would not be lost on us. We pray, Lord, that these commands would be clear to us and that we would walk in them in ever-increasing fervor and intentionality and jubilation. We pray this because we believe it to be the will of Jesus, the one to whom we want to glorify in our daily living. And so we ask this today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we're going to begin at verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intended to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus was the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, and be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus, and Fortunatus, and Stephanus, and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send a hearty greeting in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, in our previous two sermons, we tackled the plans and commands portions of this passage. And if you'd like deeper detail on those topics, I'd invite you to go either to the website 
or to Facebook, and you can watch or listen in again to see what you missed. But for the rest of today, time only permits us to zero in on the commands portion of this scripture, because Paul has strategically scattered across these very few verses in this final letter a series of important commands. And Paul clusters these commands around four basic categories. There are commands in relation to our uh, interactions with our ministry leaders. And then there are commands in relation to our interactions with one another. And then there's commands in relation to ourselves. And then lastly, there are commands in relation to our future. Those are the four broad categories we'll be discussing in our time together today. So if you have uh, an outline from the news and notes, it's always there each week. You can click that. You can print it out ahead of time. It'll have the cross-references in the scriptures. Or if you just want to write in your notes, we're in point three of our third and final Sunday in this text regarding commands. Regarding commands... Letter A today, in relation to our ministry leaders, well, what should we do? And the first thing we should do in relation to our ministry leaders from this passage is that we should work with and not against young ministers. We should work with and not against young ministers. Now, remember, there'll be a little bit of overlap between the Sundays, but there'll be some other things that are completely new. In verses 10 and 11, Paul says, When Timothy comes, Timothy's that young minister, see that you put him at ease among you, the contentious Corinthian congregation, for he is doing the work of the Lord. And so let no one despise him among you. Uh, Timothy is the younger minister we've mentioned in many other sermons. Uh, he's Paul's personal protege. Uh, he's being sent from, from Ephesus over to Corinth. Now, how should this rowdy congregation receive a young minister? And Paul's counsel is, look, you need to work with and not against this young man of God. Paul's counsel is that they work with and not against this young minister. Instead of being hard on Timothy, who's growing up in the ministry, those saints were commanded to put Timothy at ease among the Corinthian congregation. Why? Because he is doing the work of the Lord. Why would you want to oppose the work of the Lord? Now, we must not only try to help those budding ministers feel safe enough to learn to lead, but we also, the Bible's saying, ought to actively stand against those who stand in the way, who would otherwise discount and disparage these young God-given leaders. Verse 11 is very clear on this. Let no one despise him. The idea is the others should stop those who are continually trying to thwart the leadership. Now, sometimes some saints, maybe you've heard this in your church, uh, when they don't like something, they may say something like, well, he's only the youth pastor. He's only the associate pastor. Like, I don't really need to pay attention, listen, or follow along with that. But, but listen to what you're saying. He's only the youth pastor. He's only the associate pastor. But wait a minute, isn't he a pastor? That means he's a God-given 
under-shepherd of the great shepherd who thought this shepherd should be part of the shepherding of your soul. Now, he may be younger. He may be learning and growing, aren't we all? And that means he may make some mistakes along the way, don't we all? But instead of standing in his way and blocking the way, instead of dismissing and dissing this growing, emerging leader, instead of cutting him down in front of the crowd, instead of leaving him to, to flounder and waver when he has a difficulty, consider what wise, godly saints mentioned in our passage did when they encountered a similar situation. In our passage, there's Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila, depending on which name you use. It's the same couple. I want to take you for a second to what Priscilla and Aquila mentioned in our passage did to a young emerging leader named Apollos, who's also mentioned in our passage. So leave your thumb in 1 Corinthians 16, and I want you to go to the left of Corinthians, go back to the book of Acts, and turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, and we will start at verse 24 in that section of Scripture. Acts 18 and verse 24. The Bible says this in Acts 18, 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, and he was competent in the Scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately concerning the things about Jesus, though he knew only of the baptism of John. And, and so Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, the same people in our text, just as it's the same Apollos in our text, when Prisca and Aquila, when Priscilla and Aquila, they heard young Apollos, well, they took him aside after the sermon. And they explained to him the way of God more accurately. He was fervent, he was competent, but in some areas he could use some polish. He could use some improvement. He could use some help. I want you to notice how they did this. Priscilla and Aquila of our passage today, they reach out to an emerging, growing young minister named Apollos, and they helped him iron out the things he needed to grow in. But they did this privately. They did this discreetly. They did this, most importantly, lovingly. 1 Timothy 5.1 is a good verse to write in your Bible in 1 Corinthians 16 and alongside Acts 18. 1 Timothy 5.1 says, treat younger men in the church, and that would include ministers, younger ministers, treat them as brothers, not as children, and not as field hands doing your bidding. He's only the youth minister. But as our younger brother in Christ that we want to see grow up to nourish people in Christ long after we've run our race. And therefore, if that is true, then we should disciple them. We should encourage them. Uh, we ought to help them fan into flame their gifts for the glory of God. What we ought not to do is to pour cold water over their enthusiasm. We ought to not so berate them that they're gun-shy to ever try, fearing that they may fail. What happened when Priscilla and Aquila worked with instead of against this young man in ministry, Apollos? And they helped Apollos overcome his deficits instead of castigating him for simply having deficits. Don't we all? 
Well, I want you to look at verse 27 of Acts 18, and then we're going to leave the Acts 18 text, and you can come back to Corinthians. In verse 27 of Acts 18, when we actually do discreetly, privately, lovingly help improve people instead of just blowing up and showing up people, here's what happens. Acts 18, 27. When Apollos wished to cross into Achaia, the brothers encouraged him. Yeah, we see potential in you. We see the Lord using you. And they encouraged him, and they wrote to the disciples, a good guy's coming, and he has a lot of potential, and we've seen him grow, and we want you to know it. And when he arrived, this is what happened in Acacia, when, when Apollos, who was built up instead of beat up, was sent out. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, he strengthened the churches in Acacia. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. If we build up, we can send out. If we beat up, God will stop sending us people to beat up. Apollos was gifted, Apollos was talented, but he needed some guidance and he needed some encouragement. Are we the kind of saints who encourage those God is grooming for leadership in his church, or are we the kind of saints who like to show off what we know so we can show out those who know less and we, they learn to stay out of our way and stay in their lane and defer to what we prefer because we are bigger and older and louder and we have more people who know us better. Friends, in regards to young ministers, let's be sure we work with and not against those God calls to shepherd us. And this brings us to Arabic 2 regarding commands in relation to ministry leaders. In addition to how we should relate to younger ministers, the Bible seems to be saying that we should respect and rightly submit to our lay elders. In our passage, it seems pretty clear that we should respect and indeed even rightly submit to our lay elders. Uh, look at verse 15. And now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Acacia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And he says this, to the Stephanus' household, to those people who devoted themselves to the service of the saints, they're in ministry, in the community, in the church. He says, be subject to such as these. That is, to all the lay elders, not just that one. And to every fellow worker and laborer, that is, those that God is putting over you for your spiritual good, you're going to work with them to have respect and rightly submit to them. I rejoice in the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they've refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. So there's recognition or respect or honor in our passage, and there's also a, a sense of biblical submission. Not unbiblical submission, but biblical submission. Okay, so... So, who were these people? Well, Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, the Bible tells us, were some of the earliest converts Paul reached for Christ. When he landed in Corinth, some of the first people who responded to the gospel were the household of Stephanus. Um, therefore, there were no one else to baptize people, because Paul was one of the only believers, so he baptized the household of Stephanus. In fact, he specifically mentions that when he says, look, I'm glad I didn't baptize very many of you. That's not what I came here to do, but to preach the gospel. I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Why? Because there was nobody else to do it. 
And then once this household became baptized and they grew in their faith, it would seem that that household probably did baptisms for others. And so uh, it would seem that the household of Stephanus, not only being some of the first converts, they became key leaders. They were fellow workers, Paul says. They were fellow laborers, the, the Bible says. It would seem they became lay elders in that emerging congregation in Corinth. The Bible says these people devoted themselves to the service of the saints. They devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And so how ought we, as the people of God, interact with our lay elders graciously given to us by God? Well, the Bible seems to say that we ought to respect and rightly submit to their leadership. Uh, we respect them, verse 18, give recognition, give honor to such people. We submit to them, verse 6, uh, be subject to such as these. Write Hebrews 13, 17 in the margin of your Bible next to this verse. Hebrews 13, 17 says the same thing and makes it very explicit. In speaking of the eldership of your local church, the Bible says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give account. Obey them so their work may be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Friends, I'm leaving. I have no dog in this hunt. Uh, but this is what the scripture says. An elder is a God-given gift to help oversee that God's house is run according to God's word. He gives us elders to feed, lead, guide, guard, and direct us to protect us. What? That God's house is run under the authority of God's word. Um, elders are given to us so that God's church might minister, as the scripture says, decently and in order. And what does that mean? That means it's according to God's will expressed in scripture. So what does that mean for me and my family? When the elders are following scripture, when the elders are godly and they're trying their best, we ought to submit to them and not buck them. <laughs> and I believe Calvary Church is doing extremely well in this regard, particularly as I talk to other pastors and where the source of their, their greatest deflation in the congregation is. Uh, we're doing so well, praise God. God has been so gracious to us here at Calvary. We have selected, by God's grace, godly elders who have strived, I believe, to serve as unto the Lord. And, and, and you as a church have so graciously submitted to our fallible leadership as we try to follow the infallible scriptures. And, and you know what? There are always going to be minor matters along the way where we might see things differently, and I've seen you respond graciously and reverently and submissively, reverently to Jesus and submissively to us, and we are so grateful. Praise God. Thank God. We ought to worship God this week because Calvary is in such a good place in this at this moment. But sadly, many other churches are not. And so the effectiveness of their witness gets lost because hard-headed parishioners buck their elders and hard-hearted elders lord it over their parishioners. Both sides can be very wrong. Thank God we have a gracious God who's graciously working in our church. And so in regards to our ministers, we should, we should work with and not against young ministers, and we should respect and rightly submit 
to our lay elders. What about those ministers who are not our pastors, young or old, and who are not our elders, vocational or lay? Uh, what about those who extend the work of the Lord beyond uh, our church? They go outside of our Judea and they work in Samaria, a little bit farther afield but near us, or even all the way to the ends of the earth. What about those guys? What about those ministers? Well, the scripture has point three to speak to us, commanding us on how to relate and come alongside those ministers. Number three, we should strategically resource our missionaries. We should strategically resource our missionaries. God is going to say this twice in our short passage, so we don't miss it. We, he says it first in verse 6, and I'll start with verse 5 for context. Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter with you so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. The apostle Paul was going to go and he's going to plant churches. He's going to come back to Corinth to help straighten out some of their challenges. And then the church in Corinth, he expected, he was expecting that church to assist him to go to the next place to do the next thing for the glory of God. Now skip down to verse 10. Paul didn't just expect him of an apostle. He expected this of, of any minister going out doing ministry that was connected to the congregation. Now skip down to verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Verse 11, let no one despise him. And here it is, help him on his way. That is, at some point, Timothy's going to finish the task in Corinth, and he's going to go somewhere else for the glory of God. He's going to need help. He's going to need prayer and he's going to need material assistance. And the church in Corinth was called, commanded by God to do that. So both Paul and Timothy, what did they do? They planted and they strengthened churches. And God's word to God's people was to come alongside these servants and help them in these God-given assignments. And, and I want to tell you again, praise God, Calvary Church, by God's grace, it's by God's grace, not by Calvary's goodness, but by God's grace, God has been so wonderful in how our congregation has worked in this situation. And I hear it from our missionaries regularly. Um, by God's grace, we give 26% of every general fund dollar that comes in, every undesignated dollar, goes to assist the work of the Lord in Judea and Samaria and the very ends of the earth. Um, by God's grace, we have a, a fully furnished missions apartment down to a toaster and coffee uh, maker and, and, and spoons and knives and forks and cribs and all of that. And, and we make it available to our missionaries and residents when they come for a season to their own home assignment and they, they're embedded here as they raise support and do missions education. They have a place to live that's turnkey. They walk in and our missions committee has already put groceries on the table and tried to put things that their family enjoys and maybe did without wherever they were. There's a well-maintained vehicle. You see that, that red uh, Ford Taurus that sits in the back uh, by near the parsonage? It's just waiting for our ministry partners. And when they come back, they don't have a car. And, and we allow them to use that car uh, to share about their ministry in, 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 in our world here. What we do collectively as a congregation, many of you also do individually and personally. I know many of you individually support various ministries, and I want to thank you for that. You, you individually support missionaries. I want to thank you for that. Um, some of you, I know this because you're supporting us as we're going back to the mission field, and I want to thank you for that. And Kim and I can't say how much we thank you of how you've come alongside us. But in preaching this passage 
I do have to say that if you've never supported a missionary personally, given that our passage commands us to do this, might you prayerfully consider if that is something God would have you to do? And if it is, who would he have you to do it with? We have a whole list of missionaries in our church, and if you talk to our missions committee, there are other missionaries that we'd like to fund, we'd like to help, and we just don't have the ability to do so. I want to encourage you, Calvary's doing great corporately. How are you doing individually? Because this command is true, and you want to be where God wants you to be in regards to this. Because 1 Corinthians 16 teaches we should strategically resource our missionaries. And the final item in regard to ministry leaders in this passage is very subtle, and I don't want you to miss it. It's very subtle, but it's very important. Number four, we should recognize, you know, there is no rigid hierarchical model between various ministers. There is no, in the Bible, rigid hierarchical model between various ministers. I want you to look at verse 12 again. And now concerning our brother Apollos, Paul writes, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but he didn't. It was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. So what do we learn from that biblically? We learn that the apostle Paul does not biblically outrank the preacher Apollos. And that is interesting, because while Apollos is an eloquent preacher, he is not an apostle. And yet, an apostle, even the apostle Paul, could not order him. He could only encourage him. Friends, we've spoken about this in other sermons in our series through the pastoral epistles and in Peter. But basically, Scripture tells us that, that an elder is an overseer, and an overseer is a pastor, and a pastor is an overseer, and the three terms are synonymous, and we see that in multiple texts. And we also know that the word we translate for bishop is the same word as overseer, and the word for shepherd is the same word for pastor, and so all those terms are the same. They're not a pecking order. They're a peer group. And so in Scripture, there is no hierarchical model. There is no super pastor or super apostle or bishop over other congregation. We don't even see an actual apostle, Paul, having this kind of authority. And so I ask you, why would we presume men have this authority today? They didn't in the Bible, and yet they do in some church denominations in their traditions. Hey, friends, Jesus Christ is Lord of the church. We don't look to man, we look to the God-man who gave us a God-breathed book. And so our spiritual leaders only have authority to lead us to the extent they lead us from this book. They don't have inherent authority because of some supposed unbroken line of apostolic succession because we have an apostle here who didn't have authority to boss around Apollos. Now, we've seen these commands in relation to our ministry leaders. We're going to move to the second major subject in our passage. What about in relation to ourselves? In relation to our ministry leaders, we've seen those areas. What about in relationship to ourselves? What are the commands? There are four commands, and they come in rapid succession, and they're worthy of our attention. And, and, and they are clustered together just in verses 13 and 14. 
Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. We're going to lump act like men and be strong together. And then let all that you do be done in love. So in relation to ourselves, we see ourselves. The mirror is in verse 13 and 14. In relation to ourselves, what should you and I do every day? Number one, we should be watchful against error. We should be watchful against error. The verse says, verse 13, be watchful. Don't be passive, be watchful. Numerous errors had crept in, flooded in, and indeed almost swept away the church in Corinth. There was a worldly carnality in regards to their sexuality, fueled by their, sculpt, their culture that utterly defied the scriptures. And Paul says, you need to be watchful about that. Uh, there was a haughty arrogance that looked nothing like Jesus, and it caused perpetual petty factionalism, which fractured their unity and hindered their ability to share the gospel persuasively in their community, and we need to be watchful against that kind of petty factionalism, that me-firstism, that I and my tribe are right and everyone else must capitulate or there will only be war. And then there was an uncritical adoption of the world's assumptions regarding critical central doctrines, even including the resurrection. And those assumptions needed biblical correction. That was chapter 15, right? They got the, the resurrection wrong. Some in the church were teaching uh, unchristian doctrine about something as central as the resurrection. And so what must we do? Well, first of all, we must be watchful for error, and then we must do something else. The other side of the coin is that we must be unmovable in the truth. We must be unmovable in the truth. We live in a day where everyone wants to move us depending on the feeling of the moment or the size of the mob. But the Bible's saying, hey, you need to be watchful in the truth. You need to be unmovable in the truth. Be, be watchful for error. Be unmovable in the truth. And here it is, verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the truth. Stand firm in the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15. Write that down next to this verse. 1 Timothy 3.15. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. It is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. If the church abandons the truth, there will be no more truth heard in this fallen world. If the truth sets us free, God's people must be unmovable in this truth. We must stand firm in the faith. My friends, no matter what blows against us, we must stand firm. Which is why we must remember the counsel of Jude 3. I'd encourage you to write that verse next to this verse. Jude 3, which tells us as the church of the living God to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. We don't need a to be novel with the gospel. We need to be faithful. We need to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. Now, now if we're going to be watchful against error, if we're going to be unmovable for the truth in a world full of lies, then we must understand point three. We must, point three, we must be strong and courageous in the face of opposition. 
We must be strong and courageous in the face of opposition to the Christian position. Verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Act like men. Not a, a term that would be said a lot today when everyone doesn't want to talk about anything. like The Bible doesn't have a problem with that. Act like men. Be strong. We have way too many Christians and Christian leaders that don't act like men. And they're not strong in the face of opposition and error. Act like men is the Greek word andridzomai in the original Greek New Testament. It, it, it's from the word anthropos, from which we get our English word for man, the, 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 the term anthropology, the study of man, anthropos, the study of man. Andridzomai, as the British would say, would be play the man, play the man, buck up and play the man. Probably not a great English accent. Apologies to those of you that have one. The Bible is saying, be a man. Act like an adult. It's not just gender specific. It's be a grown-up in a world of babies. Are we God's army or are we a bevy of babies? Because in some churches, it's unclear. There are so many crying out for a nook to be given what they want to be pacified and they'll keep crying until they're, instead of marching forward to Zion, the city of God, though none go with me, still I will follow. One is biblical, one isn't. Which one will we be? Now, andridzomai is, is linked to another word, and the second Greek word is kratio, kratio. And it means to be stronger than average, to be stronger than what's expected. Taken together, Andridzomai and Kratio are the New Testament equivalents to the Old Testament repeated injunction, be strong and be courageous. Do you remember when we went through Joshua together? One of the first series, the first book I think we went through together when I came here five years ago. And over and over, in the face of an onslaught of all kinds of enemies and problems, the Bible tells the church, tells Israel, the people of God, tells the leader of the people of God, Joshua, be strong and courageous. And Dridzomai and Kratio. These are commands. These are commands. God is commanding us act like men, be grown ups, and be strong. But I want you to also know in the Greek something very surprising. These commands are in the passive voice, they're not in the active voice. It's not you be strong in your own strength, it's you be strong by yielding to someone else's strength. Meaning, we are not to try to conjure up our own strength and in our own strength be strong and be courageous. No, we must look to and we must lean to God for his strength. As we watch for error and stand for the truth, we must look to and lean on God's strength. Be strong and courageous in the Lord. Be strong and courageous through the Lord. Be strong and courageous for the Lord. And it's very much in keeping with Colossians 1.29. You might want to write it down to flip to it another time. Colossians 1.29, the Apostle Paul says this. He speaks of his bold ministry for Jesus in the face of many oppositions. He says, I labor, striving according to Christ's power, which works mightily in me. Now, the, the, the power of Paul was Jesus. It wasn't Paul. 
The word Paul means small. When they describe him in extra-biblical literature as a big nose, they say, and he's a small man, and the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians go, he's not as impressive in person as he is in his letters, but boy, I tell you what, he's impressive in person and in his letters when Christ is seen through him. And look out for those who would want to dishonor Christ through their own strength when they meet a Paul who is leaning on the Lord Jesus. Unless we wrongly perceive that being strong and courageous means we ought to be unchristlike in our demeanor. Uh, sometimes we have a worldly understanding of strong and courageous and we think it means to be a bully. We think it means to be uh, overbearing and an overlord. No, the fourth command must also stand. So hear it when you hear, be a man, be strong, but, but do it this way. <laughs> Point four, we should be loving in all of our dealings. We should be loving in all of our dealings. Verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And here it is, verse 14, let all you do, all of it, be done in love. As you're watching, as you're correcting, as you're standing, as you're being strong, do it in love. If the Corinthians just followed the four commands of verse 13, we would not need all the rest of this book. Let me prove that to you. If the Corinthians would just follow these two verses, the four commands of these two verses, the things we need to do in relation to ourselves, we would not need the rest of the book of Corinthians. If they had adopted being watchful and careful, they would not have uncritically adopted the outlook of the culture, and that would have eliminated all the conflicts in the first 11 chapters of the book where they fight over all kinds of silly and lesser things factionalism, food offered to idols, marriage and singleness, all of these things, lawsuits. If, if they would have just been watchful and careful, they would have not adopted the culture. They would have stayed true to Scripture, and you wouldn't need the first 11 chapters to deal with all the friction in the congregation. If they would have just been loving in all of their dealings, if they'd have just been loving in how they dealt with their spiritual gifts, you wouldn't need chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. Because the use of their gifts would have been guided in love, chapter 13, explaining how to do chapters 12 and 14. We wouldn't need those three chapters, would we? If they would have just been unmovable in the truth, we wouldn't have needed the rest of the council of chapter 15, which talks about the centrality of the resurrection. This would have never been a question because the Christian position regarding the, the resurrection is taught with great repetition from Matthew to Revelation. If they'd have just stood in the truth they already had, they wouldn't have needed chapter 15. Friends, this one verse, if scrupulously followed, renders all the other verses in the entire epistle essentially redundant. Oh, that we would follow the commands about ourselves, how different the church would be. Likewise, it's wise to, to scrutinize and then abide in our next command. It's letter C today, letter C today, in relation to one another. We've talked about ourselves. Now, when I refocus myself, how do I relate to those next to me, my brother? <laughs> in relation to one another, we should cultivate appropriate intimacy, significant unity, and generous hospitality within the body. 
You can't always get this with wider society. The world is often at war with the things of God. But in relation to one another as brothers and sisters, we should cultivate appropriate intimacy, significant unity, and generous hospitality within the body. And this comes from verse 20. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another, brothers and sisters, with a holy kiss. A holy kiss is mentioned by Paul here, but also in Romans 16, 16, and in 2 Corinthians 13, 12, and in 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, Paul mentions it repeatedly, doesn't he? The apostle Peter mentions something similar in 1 Peter 5, 14, where he says, greet one another with the kiss of love. It's the same kiss. Now this verse, when we read it, it can seem kind of out of touch in light of the Me Too moment we've just experienced, and in light of the coronavirus concerns, kissing people seems a little bit, you know, we're all going to die. But it's a misunderstanding of what the verse is really saying, and I want you to get at the kernel of what the verse is saying, not the, not the husk of what's sort of cultural in this. It's not any old kiss, the Bible's saying. It's a holy kiss. And New Testament scholar Douglas Moo points out This was the kind of greeting that was only typical among family members in the Greco-Roman world. There was no corresponding practice in the Greco-Roman religious cults of the day. That is, if you were in any other religious group, you didn't kiss strangers because they adhered to the same God as you. You only did that to family. And yet the Bible says in multiple books, this was a very common practice among the Christian community. And it was striking. It was a common practice among believers. The holy kiss consists of this. It consisted of women kissing other women, not men, and men kissing other men, not women, and kissing them on the cheek or perhaps on the cheeks. That's what it was. And in some cultures, this is still an appropriate greeting. If you go to some places and you say, hi, I'm so, they'll kiss you on both cheeks. And there's nothing uh, untoward about it. It's a greeting. Now, some cultures bow to greet you and show that you're welcomed and we want to honor you. And some cultures shake hands, at least before coronavirus. Much like the situation regarding head coverings in a previous chapter, chapter 11, we must remember that it's the underlying biblical principle that's eternal. And so let's not fixate on the form of the kiss. That's flexible. The eternal biblical principle is not the kiss. It's what the kiss represents. It represents that in relation to one another, we should strive to cultivate appropriate intimacy, significant unity, and generous hospitality within the body. Friends, there was real intimacy. They kissed each other. It was appropriate intimacy. Men didn't kiss women, and women didn't kiss men. So no one misconstrued this as unholy or sexual or untoward or forced. And yet this act of intimacy showed their their unique identity that was inherent to Christianity. They were different. They viewed each other differently. Where else but the church would slaves greet their masters with a kiss? Where else but the church would Jews not just eat with Gentiles, but upon greeting they would receive each other with a kiss? 
the church of Jesus Christ demonstrated the unity of the body just by the intentional and unconventional incorporation of this action. The holy kiss was a sign to the world that we're one in Christ. The holy kiss was a sign to one another as believers that, that, that you are my adopted family through Christ. It was a sign that, you know what, you belonged here. If everywhere else in the entire world you are an outsider and you are marginalized and you are an afterthought, that wasn't true in the house of the living God, among the people of God. If you are a, a blood-bought possession of the Lord Jesus, you are my brother, you are my sister, and I am glad to see you and receive you, and I'm glad you're here today. I, I, I heartily and enthusiastically greet you and they would do that with a holy kiss. This is just like Jesus told us in John 13, 35. Jesus told us, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you have an elaborate smoke and mirrors service that harnesses technology that fills the auditorium wrapped, that's not what he said. He said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. And so, Jesus gives us a new commandment, not suggestion. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you're also to love one another. So I ask the question, Christian, in our congregation, do people feel the love of God when they're in our presence? Do they feel it at the office? There's something different when Bob walks in the room because Jesus comes in the room as well. Are our gatherings marked by Christ-like warmth? Do we go out of our way to show and say, we love you, you matter, you are welcome here? That's the gist behind the holy kiss in our text today. So how are we doing in this? If we are introverts by nature, and I am one, this can kind of hurt at first. And so the Bible would tell us to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Don't do what comes naturally. Do what comes supernaturally. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness in this. And so we must come out of our shells and stop being fearful little turtles who turtle. And instead, we ought to greet one another with the cheerful abandon of a Labrador puppy seeing its human come back from the office after a day away. You see the difference between a turtle who hides in fear and a puppy who's so glad that you're here. Which one are you when people encounter you? And does that best represent Christ to them? You know, there's a reason people made the sitcom Cheers must-see TV. Because making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from, from all your worries, well, it sure would help a lot. And sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. Friends, that place is not fictional that place is biblical, and you and I are the agents to make that place actual in 2020. 
That place is not a bar in the basement in Boston. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And you should see it, whether that church meets under a tree in the savannah of Africa or whether they meet in an auditorium in Manhattan. And so let's be that kind of church so Christ is seen in northern New Jersey because that's the only church you and I will be held accountable for, what we did in this church to the glory of God. And this brings us to our final verse today. And it brings us to our final point today, letter D. In relation to our future, in relation to our future, we should carefully consider our posture towards Jesus Christ. In relation to our future, we should carefully consider our posture towards Jesus Christ. I want you to look again at verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord let him be accursed. If anyone has no love for the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. And then it says, our Lord, come. Two very different statements. In the original Greek, this sentence is jarring in its verbal cadence. The reader is struck by the proximity of two words that sound similarly, but could not express sentiment that are more differently. Uh, the words in the Greek are anathema and maranatha. Do you see how they sound the same? They, anathema and maranatha. Now, anathema means to be accursed. It literally means to be sent to hell. It is a consignment to the catastrophic and experiencing irreversible judgment for those who are so consigned. Whereas Maranatha, the other word, is two Aramaic words that sort of have been smuggled into our Greek New Testament. And they essentially mean this, our Lord, come. Our Lord, come. And so one is a curse and one is a prayer. Now who is being cursed? Is it lost people in general? Doesn't seem to be the tenor of Scripture. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And it would seem this anathema, this curse, is directed to those who professed Christ and yet didn't really possess Christ. But Paul knows, because he writes in Romans, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, so he would never write anathema to a true Christian. So those under anathema in this passage must be those who are in the church, but not of the church. They are in the church, but they are not in Christ. They called themselves Christians, but like the last chapter, they denied the resurrection. Uh, like we saw in the early parts of the book, these people called themselves Christians, but they had no love for their brother, and they rather sought to climb the social ladder by, by stepping on others. And we see it in their factionalism. We see it in their sensationalism. I have the best and most exciting gift. We see it in their total disregard to how their actions defame the name of Christ in their community. Because it's not about Christ, it's about them. And so anathema seems to be referring to those who are in the church building, but not of the church that God is building by faith alone, by grace alone, through the blood of Christ alone. 
They are part of the church local. They're in attendance. But they're not part of the church universal because there's no repentance to Jesus. These folks are dividing the body. They are constantly agitating in the body. Why? Because they're lost. And what you see come out of the cup in our words and deeds is what's in the cup, and that's either Christ or it isn't. Paul seems to be warning those people that are playing church, they are playing with fire, the literal fires of hell. And so this final greeting contains a final warning. Get your heart right. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. But then this final greeting also has something that's so heartwarming. You see, for genuine believers, there is also a prayer. Maranatha, our Lord, come. Maranatha, our Lord, come. This is an Aramaic import. It's not a Greek word, and yet it's in our Greek New Testament. And since Aramaic was the adopted language of the Jewish people owing to their Babylonian captivity, and since we have this Aramaic word, it means this prayer comes from the very earliest days of early church history. When the, the Jewish people's formal religious language was Hebrew, but their common tongue was Aramaic. Jesus cried out from the cross in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And since we have this prayer in Aramaic, we know it's the oldest and earliest statement a Christian could have uttered when the church was utterly Jewish, and yet here it's written to the church predominantly of Gentiles in Corinth. And that means that from the very start of the church age, saints were urged to pray for the start of the next age, the age to come. Come, Lord Jesus, and usher in the next. And so I ask you today, where are you today? Can you say, Maranatha, our Lord, come? Or would God's word say to you, Anathema, be accursed? Now here's the good news. If your trajectory regarding eternity is a little bit sketchy, and you don't know where you stand, you can fix that permanently by repenting immediately. And the Lord Jesus will cleanse you thoroughly. He will adopt you eternally. He will accept you entirely. If you would like for your sins to be forgiven, if you would like for your eternal destiny to be utterly certain, if you would like to have life abundantly, then you need to give your life to Jesus immediately. And you need to invite him to be the new Lord and God of your life today. The Bible says in Romans 10.13, in fact, the Bible promises in Romans 10.13 that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. It doesn't matter what you've done before today. It matters whether you cling to Jesus today. 
Romans 10.9 promises, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I want to make him God of my life. I want him to run my life. I'm putting my life in his hands. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You don't believe in fictional Jesus. You believe in biblical Jesus who overcame death and hell and sin. And he did it so you could have life forever. Then Romans 10.9 promises, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Romans 6.23 is very clear, my friends. The wages of sin is death. You and I have a debt we cannot pay. We can spend eternity paying it. It will never be relinquished. We have sinned against an infinitely holy God and that requires an eternal punishment because the measure of the transgression will take eternity to express. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's not in good works. It's not in being in church. It's in Jesus. And so, praise God that peace with God is possible. It is available. But peace with God must come through the Prince of Peace. And peace with God must come on God's terms doesn't come on our terms through religion. It comes on God's terms through revelation. And God's terms are this, our unconditional surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And if you're ready to humble yourself and look to Jesus today, you can be saved right now. I'm going to pray, and if you in your heart want to give your life to Jesus Christ, you can become a Christian right now. You can, you can become born again and cleansed and adopted in the family of God. And it's not the words that are magical. It's the desire of your heart that God will hear. He sees the heart of the matter, and the matter is a matter of the heart. I need my heart of stone to be turned to a heart of flesh. I need to be changed from someone who's shackled to the things that I want to leave, the things I don't want to do, I do. And I want to be turned to the things that I do want to do to give God honor and glory and pleasure. And I can't do that without Christ in me, the hope of glory. If you want that today, you can pray with me right here, right now, right with me. Father, forgive me, for I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And I know there's no other name under heaven by which we may be saved in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who lived a life sinlessly, who died on the cross for me vicariously, and who rose from the dead victoriously. And so I ask that he would renew me and remake me, that I would be born again and that I would shine for him and I would live for his glory. Give me a holy boldness for Jesus. Show me how you fashioned me to be an object of your glory. Help me to use my gifts and indeed to fan them in the flame and to come alongside others and encourage them as long as it's called today so the deceitfulness of sin might not weigh down our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.